Art Scene Now with a conversation from July 2021. Dr. Alexander Riley has had a long-standing research interest in the 1960s, and he tells us it mostly stems from this experience. I still remember the first time I heard Jimi Hendrix. A friend of mine, you know, I was at a friend's house and a friend put the, it would have been a cassette tape or something back in those days. He put the tape on and this, these sounds started coming out and I said, what is that? And my friend goes, it's, you know, it's Hendrix. I had never heard him. And I, within about five minutes, I said, so I've got to hear everything possible from this guy because that's just so remarkable that it was just, it just totally blew the top of my head off. Dr. Alexander Riley is a professor of sociology at Bucknell University in Lewisburg, and the rather exciting and bewildering experience he had in first encountering Jimi Hendrix can serve as an image for us as we approach the era as a whole. In fact, Dr. Riley prepares us for a wild ride in the introduction to the recent volume he's edited, titled Reflecting on the 1960s at 50. He writes, In the 1991 PBS documentary, Making Sense of the 60s, Carl Oglesby, a former president of the Students for a Democratic Society, summed up the decade's deep contradiction and contestation in admirably poetic form. The 1960s will never level out. It's a corkscrew. It's a tailspin. It's a joyride on a roller coaster. It's a never-ending mystery. Who won? Who lost? What were the terms of victory and defeat? We'll always be discussing that. I think it was another American Civil War, in a sense, and it has all the drama, the melodrama, the comedy, the pathos, above all the confusion, the uncertainty as to outcome and meaning and significance that the Civil War of the 1860s had. Maybe it's just that in every 60s decade, 18th century, 19th century, 20th century, we have to go through some crisis like this, but certainly we had us a time and we're still trying to figure out what it was all about. Words of Carl Oglesby in the introduction to the new collection, reflecting on the 1960s at 50, a concise account of how the 1960s changed America for better and for worse, edited by Dr. Alexander Riley. And growing out of a year-long symposium in 2018-2019, presented by the Bucknell Program for American Leadership and Citizenship, titled The 60s at 50, we had a chance to speak by phone with Dr. Riley about the symposium and the study and some of the insights gained. We were coming up on 2018 at the time, 
And as, as a student of the 1960s and someone who has been reading about it and studying it and teaching courses dealing with the 1960s and the consequences of the 1960s for uh, 20 years or so now, I caught the opportunity to say, you know, we're, we're, we're close now to the 50-year anniversary of coming to the end of the 60s. And in fact, it was coming up on the 50-year anniversary of 1968. Everyone who knows even a little bit about that decade knows that that was a particularly tumultuous, eventful year during the decade. And so myself and a, and a few other faculty members at the time, we were, we were engaged in organizing various kinds of events on campus. Some of them were just one-off single speaker events, and some were like this one. Uh, this is a whole year-long through the academic year 2018-2019 symposium with a, with a total of six individual speakers who came out for this. But what we were trying to do was just to provide some opportunities to reflect on really big and complicated social political, cultural issues that we knew students would have some interest in, that we assumed also some folks in the community would have interest in, and use the opportunity, use the little platform that we had during that time to just provide a, a forum for, for discussion of some of those complicated issues. And certainly we do some of that already in the everyday life of a university, but we were, at the time, this group of folks that I was working with and myself, we were really interested in trying to expand the normal range of perspectives and the normal range of viewpoints that are presented on some of these contested issues and to really recognize not only the contestedness, but the value, and in fact, the imperative that a university cultivate and embrace that, that diversity of, of perspective. We talk a lot in universities about diversity these days. Very typically, though, we tend not to talk about it in the way that I have just been talking about it, that is the diversity of viewpoints, diversity of perspectives on things. We talk about it in a number of other ways. And so we were really interested in that, and we saw this particular series that, uh, that was my idea in its germinal form, we saw it as an opportunity to do that with the 60s, which is certainly one of the most contested topics in, uh, in American culture. It, it was at that time, and it still is today. In the introduction to the book, Dr. Riley, you're very modest in explaining that you have no intention of having a study before us that is thoroughly comprehensive and exhaustive. Then you also suggest that you're hoping that we can interact with these various points of view and then get some insight into what's happening right now. It's, it's a very difficult thing. And if I'm being completely honest, I think I was more optimistic about the possibility of doing that in 2018 when I organized this series than I am now. But I, I really had the sense that it, it would be a shame if we just let that symposium disappear into the ether, which is what happens with a lot of, of academic events, good and bad, where speakers come in and, and talk about things and they're, and they're not recorded. And, and there are audiences that are there, but it's, it's a wonderful thing when you have the opportunity to be able to speak a little more broadly to, to larger audiences that. So I don't know how many people will see the book, but it's, as you just noted, it doesn't pretend to be anything more than a little introduction to a topic that not only in academia, but in lots of other corners of the, the writerly universe, it's been discussed a lot. I mean, this is one of those topics that we almost certainly say more about it than actually needs to be said. In some ways, I think we think it's more important than it actually is, even though there's, a, there's another argument that says that maybe we don't fully understand the importance of the 60s in, in some of the parameters that are the most poignant and most, that, that most affect our society. But a, a little volume of just over 100 pages is a nice little introduction to a topic that I think otherwise might seem really daunting to a lot of people. I know certainly it's even as someone who is, again, who's taught courses on this and tries to keep up with some of the literature, it just it gets more and more impossible every year 
to read even a sizable chunk of all the academic literature that comes out on this. The fervor for talking about the 60s doesn't seem to decrease as we get further and further and further away from the decade. I imagine we'll still be talking about it in another 50 years. Well, with all the people who are studying the 60s, how did you go about selecting more particularly the speakers for the series? I was really trying hard in selecting the speakers to achieve some kind of, if not balance, at least, again, a diversity of, uh, of perspectives. So we had, we had a group of speakers, again, six of them total, who ranged from Todd Gitlin, who was our first speaker, who, as anybody who knows anything about the 60s knows, Todd was, a, he was an activist in the 60s, a former president of the Students for Democratic Society. He's a scholar who's written a ton of very insightful stuff over the years, not only about his own experience in the, in the 60s wars, if you will, but also from the perspective of an academic sociologist studying the, the, the phenomenon as an academic. So that we, we had him as a representative of a pretty clearly partisan perspective on the 60s, although, again, complicated. Todd complicates this by the fact, as I was just indicating, that he not only has a partisan stance and was involved in all this and still has a politics based on the 60s, very obviously, but he also came at the thing and still does come at the thing as a sociologist, so as someone who's trying to to get to what's actually the case, that is to not simply impose his ideology on the, the 60s or on the consequences of the 60s or any particular aspect of the 60s, but to, to try to figure out what's, what is, what's really happening here that may or may not jive with what, I, with what I believe going in, what my partisan position is, but as a sociologist, I'm required to do that. So we had someone like him, and then we had on, on the other side, I invited uh, Charles Kessler, who's the editor of the Claremont Review of Books and a professor of um, political science at Claremont McKenna College, and very clearly comes from a political position on the other side of the spectrum as a, as a conservative on the political right, but with some of that same framework, you know, trying to understand things and to contest some of the issues as a partisan in some ways, and also as a political scientist, as an academic, trying to understand them. So this was the intention. We really, I had the naive thought going in before any of the talks happened that we had done a pretty good job of getting a wide enough range of folks that it would not be likely that we'd get angry people shouting angry things at us, but, but that hope didn't, didn't actually bear out. And uh, we did get some, some responses from on campus. There, we're not trying to, to, to forward a, a partisan stance here. We just want to get a wide range of folks together, throw some of the issues out on the table, kick them around, talk about them, let people make their minds up. I say something to that effect in the introduction to the volume. And in fact, I cite Todd Gitlin as one of the speakers who I think most effectively summarized that view of at least how I saw our symposium. In his talk here, he talked about an anecdote. I think he had, he had gone somewhere to visit as part of a project of, of interacting with folks who were in a prison in New York State somewhere. He talked about encountering some scene where there was, I, I think, uh, an inmate or someone, maybe a family member of an inmate, who was making kind of a scene. He was angry about something. And a member of the prison staff came out and was trying to defuse the situation without escalating it you know, to the level of, uh, of a physical encounter. And the member of the prison staff at some point just asked in a very calm voice, asked the guy who was angry and was getting angry or just asked him, listen, how can we move this forward? And, and Todd Gitlin said at his talk in a, in a way that I thought that resonates very powerfully with me, at least, that's kind of where we are still in the country. We were there in 2018. I think we're still there in 2021. We're trying to find ways to move the conversation forward, to move things forward. 
we, we know we have people who believe very different things and who often have very strong and very negative ideas about people who believe things different than the things they believe. And yet we all of us still have that, that same burden that, uh, that Professor Gitlin was, was talking about. And so I, I ended my introduction with that because I thought it was so wonderful and I thought it was, that, was, that at least was my intention in, in organizing the symposium was to try to speak to that concern. How was the discussion of race framed in your series? That was the last talk of the series. And for our speaker, I invited the economist from Brown University, uh, Glenn Lowry, to come out. I, I knew Glenn from his work. I'd read a good deal of it. And also, he's been doing for a couple of years a podcast where he invites guests on and talks about issues. And I just knew that he was one of the smarter people that I had heard talking about this issue, had been writing about it for decades. He was old enough that I knew he had been involved in some of the political struggles and so forth in the, the 1960s and had a really interesting position on that. And Glenn is himself uh, an African-American guy, and so he had that part of his own identity and his own standpoint to bring to it. But he's, his politics and his intellectual standpoint on this are really complicated, and complicated in a way that I think really illustrated the potential richness, at least, of being open to changing your mind. Because one of the things that really resonated with Glenn's biography is that it was pretty clear that he had changed his mind pretty substantially about some pretty serious things over the years with respect to this, you know, this big question of race relations and racial equity and so forth in the U.S. He had moved back and forth on the political spectrum to some degree on particular substantive issues, criminal justice and race or affirmative action and race. He had actually pretty significantly changed his position based on reconsideration of evidence. So I thought this is a good guy to have come talk about this because he demonstrates exactly how hard it is to just come to a position that you think is right and then to, to just cement yourself there and to refuse to be moved by any evidence or any developments over time. One of the things that tends to happen is that if you hold a position long enough, new stuff comes in, new events take place, and you've got to make sense of them within that framework. And sometimes it's, it's possible to do that, and sometimes it gets difficult to do that. We hear today a lot about FDR and the New Deal and so forth, but are we hearing about the Great Society and LBJ and these efforts to try to change people's lives through the government? Is that something that came up in the conversation with Dr. Kessler? It, it certainly did. Charles Kessler, again, who's um, an editor at the Claremont Review of Books and teaches in a political science department out in California, he was someone who I knew largely from the CRB, but I knew some of his scholarly work as well. And I knew that he had, he had written a book probably about five or so years before the symposium that was trying to sum up early in the Obama administration, was trying to sum up from his perspective the place of the Obama administration in the, in the political history of 20th century America. And so one of the things that he did in that book was to lay out some of that historical political landscape that you've just touched on, to, to go back to the, the origins of the progressive movement in American politics that President Obama had been very clear from fairly early on in his time in politics, had been very clear that he was attached in, in various ways to that, uh, that movement. And Charles Kessler just tried to show, so here's, here's what that movement Here's how it began. In fact, even before FDR begins in the Woodrow Wilson administration and then is really extended in some massive ways during, as you said, the, the New Deal and the FDR, several FDR administrations. And then from our perspective on a symposium, in a symposium on the 60s, it was really the, the chapter on LBJ and the Great Society that I focused on in, in a number of the questions that I asked Charles when he was here. 
And I wanted to know exactly some of those, the parameters of that comparison that you were just making. How much is, how much is the, the Great Society's vision of American society still affecting not only our political discussions and our political debates? We, we know that at least some people today still reference it and still bring it up, either in criticism or in celebration. But also, how much have the consequences of the Great Society programs, both in their, in their successes and in their failures, how much have they affected the, the broader contours of American polity and just the, the structure of our, our political institutions? And, and so I, I asked Charles, first, first of all, just to go through some of the details of what, what was the LBJ Great Society programs. This is, again, 50 years is it's not a long time for some folks with a particular perspective, but from the framework of, a, of college students who are 18 or 19 or 20 years old, uh, I remember having some conversations at the time of the symposium with some of my students where some of the kids were, were fairly honest about saying, listen, we have no idea what any of this stuff is about, really, other than at the most superficial level. Obviously, we know there were big, big fights about race in the 60s, and there was there was Woodstock and there was, you know, various other things, but Great Society program specifics of what was being proposed, yeah, that's that's a little bit too much in the weeds. And so Charles was here to to get us into the weeds a little bit and talk about that. And one of the things that came out in his remarks and, in, and is there in the chapter in the book is just the, it's, almost, it's difficult to fathom exactly how ambitious the Great Society programs were, how, how even to, to get at the almost limitless optimism that people had, not just people on the political left, as, as LBJ was and as uh, his, his closest allies in Congress and elsewhere were, but, he, but even for people who might have, in other periods, been more guarded or more pessimistic in their political prognostications because they leaned in a more conservative direction. Even, even the, a lot of those people in this period felt like we're in a position, we the United States are in a position right now where we can do uh, a huge amount to fundamentally change not just American society, but to change the world. I mean, that, that in some ways, it's, it's, it's too simple, I guess, to say that that narrative that a lot of Americans still adhere to today, that as we go, so goes the world. If we decide we're going to do this, then we can get it done. It's just a matter of if we, can, if we put our, our nose to the grindstone and do the work, we can accomplish anything. It's too easy to say that that originates in the 60s, but certainly the spirit of the 60s and the great society programs is one of the the most pristine versions of that narrative, just the, the, the almost limitless optimism, the, the way that LBJ talked about it, that we'll, we'll end poverty in our time. I mean, just to think about that, again, especially now in the wake of the fairly clear failure to have done the thing that he was hoping and that lots of other people were hoping we'd be able to accomplish then. It's remarkable to see exactly uh, how optimistic people were. And it's not as though there weren't reasons for them to have that optimism. That's one of the, things, the other things that Charles talked about, even though he made it very clear that he was critical of that vision, and he thought, in fact, that the vision was destructive in some ways. It had caused some really serious difficulties. It had, it had created, in fact, some problems that it had never intended or even imagined would emerge as a result of some of the policies that were enacted. But it, you know, at the same time as he had that critical vision, he said, there were good reasons. It's not as though LBJ was, was a, a dummy who was just operating on pure blind faith about his ability to get accomplished whatever he thought he could get accomplished. It was that a whole bunch of things had come to line up in this very fortuitous way during this period. American prosperity, the economy was, was roaring. Our global position was really at the, at the height of its power. And so there were real reasons to think that we could do some of these things that LBJ announced. And they, they really made some efforts to try to, to put some of this program into, uh, into practice. 
with, again, a, a, a very mixed bag in terms of results. But I, but I think the, the upshot of the Kessler talk for, at least in, in reflecting in conversation with some of my students, some of whom attended the talk and, and some of whom I know have read the chapter, at least in part because I've signed it, a lot of their reflection was, wow, this really, this gave us a lot of meat to dig into in terms of what the actual proposals were, what LBJ was trying to do, how we thought he could go about doing it, and then what were the things that caused it ultimately, at least in its, in its most optimistic parameters, to, to fail to get to the, to the end point, to fail to get to the, to the goal line. How about Dr. Carbone, the conversation about family? Yes, June Carbone is a, a legal scholar who's been employed in the University of Minnesota Law School for, uh, for a long while. I knew I wanted to have someone come and talk about this big topic, family, marital, sexual revolution, the gender roles, revolution, et cetera, of the 60s and early 70s. And I had a number of people in mind. And my colleague Jen Silva said, check June Carbone out. She gave me a couple of her books, uh, recent books in which she and a colleague of hers had written, in which they looked at what seemed to be this interesting dilemma or interesting, I don't want to call it a contradiction, but just an interesting fact about the consequences of marital and familial change in the 60s. And, and the thing that she found in uh, these several books was that if you think about what's the, what's the nutshell version of how family and marital policy changed coming out of the 60s, it's that, well, divorce got more common, marriage became a little more, if not tenuous at least, it was more possible for more people to put it off for longer. Some people could more conveniently and more, it made it more possible for them to, to avoid it altogether if they just didn't see that as part of their, of their life plan. And child rearing and, and family sort of followed along with that change in how marriage worked. It became more plural, less centered on this model of the, the two-parent biological monogamous family raising their kids and, you know, being really invested in the family as a, as a unit and in the doing everything they can to make sure that the marriage remains viable, despite whatever difficulties they might have, because it's seen as this really important institution. The 60s message seems to be, well, let's minimally, let's lighten up on that a little bit. Let's allow a little more individual freedom at that level for people to have their, their own sexual lives, their own freedom to choose about their familial institutions or lack thereof, etc. June Carbone, in these couple of books that my colleague pointed me to, showed that while that seemed to be the cultural message that had gotten out to the American public about the meaning of the 60s, it was interesting that, to note that, in fact, if you looked along a class divide in American society and compared upper-middle and upper-class families to lower-middle and lower-class families, you found this interesting fact in which it was mostly the lower-middle class and the lower-class families who were experiencing the more plural familial structures. That is, who were experiencing more divorce, who got married less frequently, and when they did get married, had more tumultuous marriages, often had um, families that were you know, complicated by all sorts of remarriages and, and kids who had been shuffled around from one place to another, uh, had more difficulties with respect to kids' outcomes, at least in part as a result of some of that family instability. And the, the upper middle class and the upper class families, on the other hand, the very ones who are, you know, very frequently, these are the folks who are in working in universities or working in other cultural institutions and sometimes propagating the line of, you know, cultural liberation that came out of the 60s on family and marriage. When you actually looked at their practice in their families and their marriages, they were still basically getting married and staying married and adhering to that old familial model of the, you know, the monogamous two-parent family much more strenuously than folks in the lower classes were. And so 
Professor Carbone just said, this is, this is really interesting, that here's this, this family model which got some criticism in the 60s. And, and some of, you know, just to, to make things even more complicated here, Professor Carbone in her talk when she, when she was here at Bucknell, she noted that, in her view at least, there was a kind of inevitability to some of the changes in the structure of family and marriage, just because some major transformations had been going on in the American economy and just in American mating practices more generally, basically related mostly to women's increasing rates of education and their, their increasing dissatisfaction with an array of limited options for, for family and for marriage. So she, she, she did certainly acknowledge and does in her books acknowledge that there, there were some forces pushing things in this, in this direction pre-1960s. But it, it nonetheless remains an interesting fact that the track record of that monogamous two-parent family seems, at least in practice, among upper-middle-class and, and upper-class families in America, it seems to still be something that they're very eager to hang on to, even if they, they sometimes don't preach the same model that they still tend to practice as much as they used to. So she was the, she was the person that, as soon as I looked at that work and saw that interesting bit of complexity in the, the way that she had framed all those issues, I said, well, this, this will be a marvelous talk. And, and, and it certainly was. And she she was able to present a good deal of that great degree of complexity. Again, with all of these issues, we could have had a whole symposium just on that issue of family and marital change coming out of the 60s, or just on the issue of race. But the fact that we just had one speaker on each of them meant that we had to, we had to be really careful about getting somebody who was going to be able to give us something, uh, something interesting and something that would allow, even though they would, they would have a particular perspective, and at least some of what they were doing would be seen probably correctly as rooted in some partisan issues, they would nonetheless be able to present the thing in a nuanced enough way that it would allow conversation with people who didn't agree with their partisan stance. Dr. Riley, you have a long-standing interest in the way humans tend to mythologize things, to create myths in their societies and lives to help make sense of the world. Can you talk about some of the ways we do that with the 60s? There was some, there was some mythological film presentation of that stuff even back then. There was the Woodstock film. There was the Monterey Pop film. That was the one that I think we talked about a little bit in the, the chat that we had two and a half years ago. We talked a little bit about what I thought when I saw Otis Redding in the Monterey Pop film. I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it. It's so I'm so predictable on this level. Seeing Otis Redding perform at Monterey Pop for a bunch of kids who had probably never seen anything, never seen a musical act like Otis Redding before. And he just comes out and just demolishes the, the crowd. Just play, just, 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 He's just Otis. And so there was a mythological element to that that I think still gets a lot of people into the 60s. A lot of my students who, when they talk openly about their interest in the 60s, that's where they start, too. It's like, yeah, I, I heard Janis Joplin, or I really like the, uh, the Beatles, or I like the Jefferson Airplane, or whatever. And that'll be the takeoff point. And now we, we mythologize not just the music and not just that cultural stuff, but increasingly there are mythological lenses for viewing political matters of the 60s. And for viewing uh, even you know discrete events like the the trial of the Chicago Eight, there have been a, a number of different movies that have come out in, in recent years, both documentary and otherwise, on the the various extremist groups that that came out of the Students for a Democratic Society in the later '60s and early '70s, including the Weatherman, the the Weather Underground, the Black Panther stuff fits into this framework. So. It's, it's consistent with the way that, as human beings, we think about history. We sometimes think about history, and we're capable of thinking about history when we, make, when we exert an effort. We're, we're capable of trying to think about it in a more or less kind of scientific way. Let me try to 
let me try to dig through all the accounts that I've got, look at all the right archives, compare various different narratives by different scholars and see if I can come up with a more or less accurate vision of what actually happened or what was actually meant by what was the actual consequence of whatever it is, the Great Society programs or the war in Vietnam, what have you. But operating at the same time in our consciousness as that desire to know in a kind of factual, if you will, scientific way, there's also an interest in myth, an interest in knowing things in a way that isn't necessarily rooted in truth with a capital T, but can nonetheless be about truths with a small t. And that truth of the, of the meaning of Jimi Hendrix's music for me you know, I don't know. I don't know exactly what will happen to me in the years that I have left. Maybe I'll change my mind fundamentally about Jimi Hendrix at some point. But it's been uh, what about 40 years now for me, and and the the view and the and the truth of Jimi Hendrix's music for me is still the same today as it was 40 years ago. It's that mythical vision of this guy. Whenever I hear Hendrix, I don't even I, I don't even get an image of someone playing a guitar. It's just of it's of someone riding some huge mythical beast and taming it and getting it to do exactly what he wants it to do, and to go exactly in the directions that he wants, you know, or riding a wave maybe, riding some huge wave of, of ocean water, and getting it, somehow getting it to go exactly where he wants it to go and shaping its contours exactly as he, as he desires them to be shaped. And, and that has to do with something that isn't about the same spirit of inquiry that you get when you're looking for truth with a capital T. But I think it's, it's, it's just as present in the human consciousness, and it's just as, as important in our efforts to try to make sense of just about anything, especially our efforts to make sense of history. So we can expect that mythological consciousness to, to remain vivid and to remain active, and all those people in Hollywood and elsewhere who are, who are making those TV series and movies and so forth, I think they'll, they'll have plenty of work to do for a long time to come still, because we'll, we'll always be interested in that stuff. Dr. Alexander Riley, professor of sociology at Bucknell University in Lewisburg, speaking about the new collection Reflecting on the 1960s at 50, a concise account of how the 1960s changed America for better and for worse, issued by Routledge, edited by Dr. Riley. The study grows out of a year-long symposium in 2018-2019, presented by the Bucknell Program for American Leadership and Citizenship, and that was titled The 60s at 50. Again, the book is Reflecting on the 1960s at 50, a concise account of how the 1960s changed America for better and for worse, issued by Routledge and edited by Dr. Alexander Riley, professor of sociology at Bucknell University in Lewisburg. For more information on the web, you can check the Bucknell Program for American Leadership and Citizenship bucknellleaders.org bucknellleaders.org and to learn more about Dr. Riley and it's R-I-L-E-Y Alexander Riley bucknell.edu bucknell.edu And thank you Dr. Riley A Conversation on Art Scene from July 2021 with Dr. Riley, Professor of Sociology at Bucknell, and for more information, bucknell.edu, bucknell.edu.